Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is September 13th, 2020, and we're on the second part of Hitler's Monsters, a supernatural history of the Third Reich. We'll end with this. Have a point in night, late 44 and 45 when, the, when Hitler, Himmler, and Goebbels are creating a werewolf partisan unit Okay, they call them werewolves because werewolves um, on the focus right have always been a positive monster. That's Germanic, lives in the woods, is masculine, goes back to Odin and Thor. To fight vampires, the Slavic and Jewish interlopers from the east, and even ethnic Germans fleeing Serbia reported on being attacked by Slavic vampires who were really communist partisans. Okay. I'm not making this up. So even the end of the war can be seen as a fight between, that's why I use the term twilight, Nazi vampires and Slavic or Jewish, or Nazi werewolves and Slavic or Jewish vampires. So I'll leave it at that. Um, Some basic conclusions um, to get back to a more academic frame of mind. Number one, magic, occultism, and border science were generally taken quite seriously by the leaders of the Third Reich, but especially after 39 which is remarkable. Instead of letting occultist language in concentration camps after the 1937 ban on astrology or the 1941 Hess action, many Nazi leaders hired the Reich's most accurate astrologers, diviners, pendulum dowsers, anthroposophists, and world ice theorists to produce propaganda, provide military intelligence, locate enemy battleships, enhance agricultural production techniques, and instruct German soldiers how to fight without regard for their own safety. Indeed, many Nazi leaders took the opportunity of the more restrictive legal environment after 37, and especially the Hess action, to enlist out-of-work occultists for their own purposes. So think about this. They make it impossible to practice occultism in the private sector and say, hey, you've got nothing to do? Come work for us. Right? Confiscated materials were not destroyed, but made it to Himmler and other leading SS men's personal libraries, or amazingly, were loaned out to Germany's most famous parapsychologist, Hans Bender, remember him, who was encouraged to open his own institute for the study of border science at the new Reich University of Strasbourg. Finally, the selective tolerance of the supernatural might have waxed and waned due to changing circumstances and the omnipresent fear that occultism and border science could, like Christianity, be manipulated to the detriment of the regime. It is sectarian after all, right? But Nazi paranoia regarding alternative ideological loyalties did not preclude utilizing occultism and border science to gain power, shape propaganda and policy, and pursue their dreams of racial utopia and empire. Thank you. Fifty minutes, so. That was amazing and scary, and I think we'll have to open a pendulum institute here at some point. Anybody have any questions? I was wondering what the connection was with the Holocaust, with this. Right. So that's it's a it's a great it's a great question. There's a lot there. Um, I would say there's all three of the strands of my research: the idea, the occultism, the pagan religion, and the border science come together in the Holocaust. So on the one hand, you have a eugenical eugenical theories that have left 
the boundaries of mainstream science. So eugenics in the West, it's horrible, and ultimately most of it's pseudoscience, right? It doesn't really work. It's not, it's not practicable. But the reason it didn't expand is because mainstream biologists and anthropologists are like, what are you doing with that syphilis experiment? You haven't proved anything. And most of the scientists, and this, this is, you need this background to understand the difference, right? Um, who were practicing eugenics said, you're right, you know, we can't, there's double blind tests. You know, it's too bad we killed all those poor African Americans, but uh, it isn't really working, right? Eugenics doesn't make sense. There were no massive programs of eugenics that lasted. In the Third Reich, they didn't really care whether it was accepted by international peer review. So they would talk in Darwinian and eugenical ways, but they're really getting the ideas from Ariosophy and Anthroposophy of root races in Atlantis and, and world ice theory. The idea that there are superior races and inferior races, that some have monstrous qualities and abilities, others are superhuman. So when you think in those terms, and the Jews are the worst of all races, and you're in a period of dearth and you're fighting against the Jewish Bolshevist menace, all of a sudden eliminating Jews is not a complex eugenical issue of, well, which Jews do we eliminate and are they partially German, becomes their monsters that have to be gotten rid of. Now, where do we see that reinforced? We see that reinforced in the views of Jews as vampires coming out of folklore. So Hitler, Himmler, Rosenberg, they're all these analogies or just literal like equations of Jews to parasitic monsters or literally vampires who like sleep under the earth and come out at night to attack Aryan women and, and suck out their life force and corrupt them. Um, this is not just a Nazi thing. I mean, there's examples, even the mainstream film Nosferatu is seen as a caricature of an East European Jewish interloper with superhuman powers over an Aryan. I mean, there's all sorts of cultural studies interpretations, but I'm arguing that these things reinforce each other. So the folklore and pagan religion and kind of uh, mysticism that informs their anti-Semitism is linked to the eugenics. And then the third thing is this border scientific idea of living space that also has a tradition um, on the focus right. The idea that we need blood and soil that's pure where we can have German peasants, uh, warrior peasants who can fight against the Slavic and Jewish hordes. And when you combine all three in war and you can start to see why they say, well, we need to eliminate the Jews and secondarily the Slavs to have a pure German empire. Does that make sense? I give a lot more detail in the book, but all three of those things reinforce each other. Eric, do you mind doing a quick touch on world ice, if you can do such a thing? Yeah, so world ice theory was invented by a, a, an amateur scientist or kind of popular writer in the 1890s, a guy named Hans Horbiger, an Austrian. And later on, that's a big deal. He, like Hitler, he's this brilliant non technically trained specialist who understands things better than mainstream scientists, right? It came to him in a dream. He had a dream that there were giant blocks of ice smashing into each other um, you know, in the, out, out in the cosmos, and that that must explain everything. And because he didn't know science, he got an amateur astronomer named Philip Thout to write with him a book called Glacial Cosmogony, which I think came out in 1912, and immediately already you know, mainstream scientists, geologists, geographers, this is like one of them famously said, if you just replaced ice with olive oil in the book, it would be no less convincing. 
right? I mean, it just was meaningless. It was like a religion he had created that giant blocks of ice smashed into each other and there were moons of ice. And when they hit the earth, they created a flood and all the frost giants did well for a while, but then they died out and the Aryans, you know, lost their civilization. Atlantis collapsed. Fit in perfectly, by the way, with the folkish occult ideas of the time. And so in the 20s and 30s, right-wing thinkers said, well, this is a great science. This isn't Jewish. You know, there's no Einstein that we've got to worry about or Freud with World Ice Theory. And then Hitler and Himmler sponsored it in the Third Reich. And I could get, I have all part of a chapter that goes into the sponsorship of, of World Ice Theory. Um, there's a belief that the reason they didn't equip properly for Stalingrad is because they thought that Aryans are more immune to winter because of World Ice Theory. And therefore, you know, the, the Russians would suffer like they did in World War One because they're inferior and don't have these superpowers, but the, the Germans will do okay. Um, there's some evidence of that, yeah. Anybody else? Oh, David. I'm curious what insight you have into German public opinion on some of these issues. You've talked a lot about certain leaders, captains, and others, but what about the people? What sources do we have about what the German people bought into? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and, and what's wonderful about the, I showed you the, some of those works, more revisionist works from the 90s and 2000s, they lay that groundwork for me. So they show the proliferation of border scientific and astrological and occult uh, thinking from the 1890s on. So their argument is that if you were a, a bourgeois German or Austrian, who hung out in a Vienna or Munich, you know, Vienna Cafe, Munich Beer Hall, you believed in something that I talked about. So their only difference from my argument is that, well, that didn't make you more susceptible to fascism than anyone else, that there's, bless you, that liberalism and socialism and all these other movements are just as, as attractive to you as someone who believes in world ice theory as fascism would be. I'm arguing that's not the case. Like the empirical research shows that the people who are most invested in this um, tend to support the fascist parties. But the fact is everyone, according to them, is, is interested in it. Now, I show in the book that even Nazis recognize or Nazi-affiliated scientists who don't like occultism that the socialists seem immune to it and the liberals. And they acknowledge that while liberals and socialists called into question all our traditional values, which helped you know, breed fascism, which is good, it's not their fault that we have these crazy ideas like World Ice Theory. That's the fault of the fascists who seem to kind of um, support that. So even within the party, there's a recognition that if you were a materialist Marxist or a secular liberal, or a very traditional Christian, you didn't find this stuff interesting. Now, my my colleagues, religious colleagues, would argue, oh, no, they, they were interested too. I, I don't see as much evidence. If you were an educated liberal or a socialist, you were much less likely to visit an astrologer or like Ludendorff, you know, think that there's weird conspiracies of people who can manipulate gold and, you know, and force your train to crash with mind waves and all these other things that right-wing thinkers seem to believe. That you can smell a Jew hundreds of meters away because they're from a different race. Um, yeah. Good question, though. Uh, there, there's, in, in the book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, 
is a really fascinating account of this man, William Houston Chamberlain, or maybe I got the name. Houston Stewart Chamberlain. Yeah, right. Um, that he was he was like the spiritual father of Nazism, and then he he was traveling up from Italy, and he had a vision, and he got off the train and just sat and wrote a book, completely possessed, completely channeled the book. The foundations of the 19th century. Right, and that book actually was the spiritual uh, guide of Hitler and all the people. But you haven't mentioned him, does he? Yeah, I mentioned him in the book. Oh, so okay. first of all, Chamberlain is emblematic of a whole kind of. And this is this gets us to some of the pagan religion stuff. So Germans in the post-Romantic era decided for all sorts of reasons, many Germans and Austrians, that traditional Judeo-Christian identity, Greco-Roman identity, classical, all this heritage that in the Enlightenment many Germans still embraced as a common Western heritage, were really the French and British view of, of the European world and that Germans were slightly different and part of that was a search for a new heritage which they found in a kind of common Indo-Aryan culture um, coming out of northwest India and Persia and lots of thinkers who weren't racist also were fascinated by what Germans called Indology the field of studying India and Indo-Aryan science and religion and culture um, Chamberlain was one of these folkish thinkers. He's actually British, but he hung out all the time in Germany, learned German, married Wagner's daughter. Hitler loved him, as you pointed out, who lent a kind of scientific sheen to this idea that there are these, these superior races. You can see how close this is to the occult doctrines at the same time that came out of an Indo-Aryan civilization. There may have been a flood. So the racist Germans who embraced this idea said... It was originally a proto-Nordic people who, after the flood and the collapse of Atlantis or the Thule Society, they went east, and those who were left mated with native Asians, which is why Asian culture is superior to African culture and why Hinduism and Buddhism are awesome religions in Shinto. The, the, the Hindu and Indian theorists on this say, no, it all originated here, and then we moved west doesn't matter that much none of it's based in really rigorous science but it does all link together in this idea of an indo-aryan superior race which is why they all all these right-wing groups choose a swastika people see that as a superficial thing that's important why are they picking an indo-aryan fertility symbol and not just the nazis like all the the german order all these occult groups because it's such a common belief that that's where the indo-aryan race comes from and religion and culture and certain occult powers that you of course you're going to put a swastika on your book on your flag right it's the substitute for the cross and chamberlain believes in that stuff so that's why and there's all sorts of interesting stuff in the third reich coming out of that but chamberlain's just one of many Paul de Lagarde, Julius Longben, um, Tador Fritsch, Lance von Liebenfels. We could talk about all these thinkers who make similar arguments. All right. Well, I know Eric will answer questions while he's signing books. If anybody wants to dive deep on any of these endless topics, thank you so much. Really incredibly fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so that is uh, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. I was a little bit disappointed because um, 
there was it seemed to me like there was a lot that was left out um that he could have gotten into a little bit more um for instance the women with the long hair that uh were mystics and could um and they guided them on the um UFOs on how to make it and all of that there and then the um the bell um and all of that so i think that it's surfacy but i was hoping that i would be able to get some more insight as to the fourth reich and the fifth reich um and how it is that um they're so hateful but didn't get it okay thanks for listening